Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me as always is the head of the world's saddest animal control operation, Dimitri. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> if it's your first time joining us, Dimitri's played games his whole life, but I only really got into them as an adult. So on this show, we're playing old games I missed and talking about how they feel today. Uh, there's more on all of that in episode zero, but today's game, I understand, is a powerful one. I mean, that's for you to decide. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, today we're we're finally doing Shadow of the Colossus. Mm-hmm. I think this is one that you've been kind of wanting to do. I have, yeah. For, for a while. I've almost picked this up on my own a bunch of times. Uh, so I'm happy that we're doing it for the pod. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's not that you haven't wanted to play all these other games, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but a lot of them are filling some gaps. But you did mention kind of frequently that, yeah, this is something you think you'd pick up on your own. Yeah. Which means you must know something about it. You'd think. <laughs> So what is it? So where are you uh, in terms of your expectations for Shadow of the Colossus? So the basic thing that I think I know about this game is that it's structured kind of around these like big, maybe kind of set piece boss fight. Like you're taking down this series of colossuses, coloss- like more than one colossus. I think colossi. Colossi. The- okay, great. Um, like I think that's the point of the game is okay. you're taking out these big, huge things. And I know, I mean, I said this a bit around Link's Awakening, but I know that this game is supposed to be like very emotional and like pretty sad. Like people were really moved by this. Right. And you were a bit disappointed or your expectations were a bit uh, unfounded, you thought, in terms of Link's Awakening. It wasn't as sad as you were hoping. <laughs> yeah. Or, or you know, maybe that's a sequence problem. Like I played it following Metal Gear Solid and I wonder if maybe I just was in the mindset where I was like, the game will tell me when I need to feel something. <laughs> <laughs> like, as opposed to, because that is so heavy handed about when it's time for feelings. Um, and so, yeah, I think I, I think like there was something that didn't come through in my experience of Link, Link's Awakening, even though I really like that game. So I'm hoping that this one I'm on the nose about. Okay. And you want to feel sad. That's, I want to feel your sad. Hope. Okay. I love to feel a feeling. Um, about games so yeah i mean i what else do i know i know i think i know you're a guy on a horse i'm gonna guess you have like sword or bow and arrow kind of what like there's not guns in this game i don't think um because it's sort of like a on the fantasy world side i think one of them is a big sky dragon like a long snaky dragon okay so you were you kind of recall seeing maybe images yeah i have it like sort of misty hazy okay stuff i mean for some context, Michelle definitely would have seen the trailer for the remake, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. the PS4 remake, watching what, E3 or something. 2015, that one came out, something like that? That sounds about right. Okay, yeah. But like in my time, it, it was it was coming out. So yeah, I mean, I have sort of in my head that like um, blue-greeny sort of cool-toned palette, um, which almost feels like looking at through things through like a sentimental or like nostalgia haze. Like I... I picture very beautiful art, but yeah, I, I really think like, I don't know who is, I don't know why you're hunting the Colossus. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you prepare. I don't know if this is open world. Like, I don't know any of that stuff. Well, so the Shadow of Colossus remake is 2018. Whoa. That's wait. What? What is time? Oh my God. Oh my <laughs> way God. more recent than okay. I remember it being. Okay. But sure. Early 2018, so pretty much 2017, but okay. in no way 2015. Okay, well, <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and so what is it that you think makes it sad? 
Why do or why do you think it's that? Just the tone of the trailers that you've seen or or hearing people talk about it? I feel like, yeah, this is from hearing people talk about it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't so I was kind of right and kind of wrong when I guessed with Link's Awakening that the twist in uh air quotes is that you're the bad guy. But I think there's something I think there's something in this game about like you're either hunting down the last of these like really majestic creatures or there's something where it comes out that you are meant to feel conflicted about the mission you're on, something along those lines, I think. Okay, yeah. You're always you're always waiting to be the bad guy. That yeah, seems to be the, the thing you really it's want like, to oh, happen. Oh no, one of these days. What if I'm the bad guy? With a mixture of yeah, this is me in real life also. <laughs> Uh, one of the things you mentioned when we were talking about this um, just before uh, we started recording was that you kept comparing it to Monster Hunter in your head. Yeah. Which like, is also a game you haven't played. Correct. So I'm also curious to know what you think Monster <laughs> like <why>? Hunter is <laughs> and why you think these are connected. Sure. So based purely on Monster, Monster Hunter World, I don't know anything about any of the other Monster Hunter games. But I think it's basically like you go on these specific hunts for these specific creatures there's a lot of time in your home base, like prepping, like getting yourself the right equipment and I don't know, potions or something. I know cats make you a steak and um, then you go hunt the things and you like loot their carcass for whatever, dragon scales, whatever, and then use that to make more stuff. And that's basically the loop of Monster Hunter World, I think. And you can do it with friends, but this one's one player. Okay. So for this game, are you expecting some kind of um, preparation segment before each one where you're equipping yourself with um, different items? Maybe. I mean, I think I mean more just the general structure of like, you are going out to hunt one specific Mm. thing. It's, it's all, it's not going to be so much about like running around the world and exploring Mm -hmm. and then finding, like I picture it being very focused around like, you're going straight to this thing to like the next Colossus you're taking down, you're figuring out how to do that. And Mm. then- probably reporting back or having some sort of thing or person that you're accountable to or updating mm-hmm. as you go. Um, so not not that there's fully like identical structure, but in my head, it's sort of like sad monster hunter is like a, has become a shorthand <laughs> for this game. And so is that something that appeals to you? Because you are somebody who tends to enjoy the exploration parts of games more than the combat parts. I mean, I think... So maybe worth bringing up here is the reason why I didn't play Monster Hunter World, even though lots of parts of it really Mm -hmm. appeal to me. And that's that I am super sensitive to animal suffering because I'm freaking soft. Even Um, mystical, mythical dragon animals. Yeah. Like often they're they're rad and they're just out there (laughs) and they're like beautiful and rare. And like I've seen animations from like when... Uh, monsters in Monster Hunter World are close to death. They're like suffering. Like you can see them like limping and like not being as like there's a real sense of them being like impaired. And I think it would be hard for me to just purely enjoy that as a fun monster fighting escapade. And so I think the the reason why I'm expecting Shadow to work a little better for me is because I am guessing that it'll lean into that feeling a little bit as opposed to like wanting me not to feel it hmm. or making me try to ignore hmm. that feeling. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. So you're, you're ready to go with this one. Yeah. But before you do, and before we talk about some of these ideas further, your thoughts about emotional games, your thoughts about oh um, boss fights, just to give you um, a bit of context um, for this game and, uh, and when it came out. So this game came out in 2005. Mm-hmm. And that's towards the tail end of the PS2's life cycle. Okay. So the PS2 was released in 2000. 
And um, the PS3 is going to be released in November 2006. Hmm. And so there's this kind of comes out one year before the end. And kind of importantly, Xbox 360 has been announced and comes out in 2005. So it's one of those cases where you have um, right, a game at the tail end of a generation, but the other generation has already started. And mm-hmm. that's kind of being compared to to, to that. Right. Um, 2005 is a pretty, pretty big year in games, too. We have a bunch of major releases. Um, we have Resident Evil 4 comes out on the on the GameCube. The original God of War comes out in 2005. Uh, Psychonauts, which I know you have some experience with, is, mm-hmm. is 2005. Was uh, that a huge game? It's more, I think, influential than okay, a, a okay. huge in terms sure. of sales. Sure, sure. Uh, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas mm-hmm. came out that year. Um, Guitar Hero. Oh. And uh, and uh, Dragon Quest Eight. So you see, it's this. Uh, it's kind of this period where there's a lot of different kind of games. Right. So you still have these classic JRPGs coming out. Dragon Quest Eight. A lot of people think that's kind of the best one mm-hmm. of those. Uh, you have the beginning of a Guitar Hero, kind of slowly uh, builds and builds and blows up, and then you have kind of the explosion of a plastic peripheral community right. games. Yep, we had Guitar Hero actually. I think. Um, yeah, and then obviously Grand, uh, Grand Theft Auto is. This is kind of the third iteration in the Grand Theft Auto kind of three trilogy and that's still kind of exploding and so shadow of colossus is a is kind of a bit of an anomaly in in this context and it's another one of these tourist games great <laughs> love an auteur <laughs> with the director being fumido ueda who is not quite um he doesn't quite have the cachet of kojima okay he doesn't quite create that cachet for himself like kojima he's not out there on twitter every day getting everyone's <laughs> no. attention okay but this is somebody who, so he's trained initially as as an artist and then gets into games. So much like Kojima, his kind of true love is in a different medium and he brings that medium into into games. That's so interesting and so weird because like it's not easy to end up like the creative lead of a game, right? So it's weird that people keep falling into that role when this is like not 100% the thing that they necessarily truly want and yearn to be doing. So so he's directed kind of three games up to this point. And so the first one was Eco in 2001, mm-hmm. um, then Shadow of the Colossus in 2005, and then The Last Guardian in 2016. Right. And I played a little bit of Last Guardian, actually. Yeah. So we should talk about that because even I don't think, did you kind of make the connection that this was that team who made yeah. Shadow of the Colossus? So you did. Okay. I did. Yeah. I know that they, because I think they're often referred to as Team Eco, and I don't know if that's their actual studio name or not um but i know that's from they made eco was the (laughs) the first one um and i remember last guardian being talked about as being from the the team that was shadow of the colossus Mm -hmm. so yeah that was definitely part of like why i picked up right and i'm I'm not sure how much of the actual team is the same but it is a fumido ueda game okay yeah and it it was supposed to come out um on the ps3 it was supposed to be a follow-up to Shadow of Colossus that was much closer to its actual release date, and then mm-hmm. it got delayed and delayed and delayed. Okay, and eventually came out um, twenty sixteen. Uh, but so you did play it. So what are some? What are your thoughts? So you did kind of you played it for just a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. You didn't finish it. No, 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 not even close. I think what I played, like for someone who was going straight through the game and not spending a ton of time playing around as as I was, it was probably only like ninety minutes of the game. Um, I think. I fooled around a bunch with Trico and which is the big like companion uh beast that you have. And I think after the first real combat encounter that you do with Trico, um I think I died and I walked away from the game intending to come back to it and then this is a thing that happens for me sometimes. I just never did. I don't really have a clear reason in my head for why that is. Like 
I definitely didn't intentionally quit this game. Like, it's not like I hit that point or any point and was like, oh, not for me putting it down. I was enjoying a lot about that game. I really loved interacting with Trico. Um, I spent a lot of time petting him and his feathers and like <laughs> moving around with him. Like, I really enjoyed that. Even like the sort of imperfect way that you work with him and maneuver him, which I think is a strength of the game overall. Um, I think part of it is that when we got into the combat encounter where you're working together with Trico, suddenly that imprecision or whatever um, became really frustrating and scary. Like, hmm. I remember having the feeling in that of like, oh my God, he's not doing what I'm telling him to. And oh my God, I'm I'm doing a bad job protecting my friend. So it, it's not that, again, it's not that I intentionally quit. It's not that that feeling drove me away, but like... I, I just didn't come back to it again. Okay, but uh, now you're ready to give uh, these games a different shot with uh, Shadow of the Colossus, which you know is probably also going to make you sad and oh, frustrated. Yeah. So oh, I, yeah. We'll see how this goes. Um, the Last Guardian's interesting because uh, to me, I, I see it as, as a kind of a combination of ideas from Eco and ideas from Shadow of the Colossus hmm. kind of merged together. And you did finish it, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So of the three, Shadow of the Colossus is by far my favorite. Okay. Um, there are definite thematic and mechanical through lines through all three games. And really for this one, we probably could have played Eco for the purposes of this show um, because it's so influential as, I'll, as we'll talk about. And maybe at a later date, if you're interested, hmm. we can go back to that. Just for me personally, Shadow of the Colossus is far superior to Eco. Cool. And I think it's also a game that is going to do a better job helping you prepare for your uh, your FromSoft game. Oh, no. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, no, I can kind of uh, forecast why that might be. <laughs> but really, you can't talk about Shadow of the Colossus without talking about Eco. So Eco's an interesting game. It was released in 2001, so right at the beginning of the PlayStation 2's life cycle. And it kind of has the misfortune of being released just one month before Grand Theft Auto 3, which incredibly blew up. And so Eco kind of got a little bit lost in the shuffle. I don't think Sony quite knew what to do with it, especially in America. It didn't sell well, but it was really critically acclaimed. A lot of uh, critics at the time and coming into Shadow Colossus kept referring to Eco as maybe the best game you've never played. Mm. And one of the things that's interesting when you're reading about Eco, especially as the team's next game is about to get released, is that a lot of critics imagine what the state of gaming would be like had the sales of Eco and Grand Theft Auto been flipped. Hmm. Like what would what would gaming look like if Grand Theft Auto was the thing on the margins and right. something like Eco became the huge success. The huge success. Right. And so Eco, much like Shadow of the Colossus, as you'll see and as you've surmised, and much like Last Guardian, is about the connection between two characters. Hmm. And this isn't really a spoiler. It's just the through line of all of Ueda's games. Okay. These games are about the relationship between the player character and a companion character. Okay. So really, Eco and all of Ueda's games think through companionship as a mechanic. So for example, there's um, you have this character, Yorda, who you kind of help rescue, and you have to bring her through this castle that you're trying to escape. And so R1 is, if you press R1, it reaches out and takes her by the hand. And Sorry, you kind of, which game is this? Eco? Eco? Okay, yeah. okay. And so you'll be taking her by the hand and leading her through. And and for a lot of people, even that act of just holding R1 to That's do that. That's so sweet. Yeah, right? They're kind of having that physical connection. I think for a lot of people, kind of including for me, it was one of these early times when you think about 
the relationship between mechanics and kind of this overall meaning. Totally. Yeah. And the way a, a simple mechanic can communicate something and um, the relationship between the, the characters. Cool. So Eco was known kind of for feeling mechanically fresh. I It had what I think is pretty bad combat. Which <laughs> <laughs> it happens, man. It's yeah. Again, one of those things like this game would be so much better without the combat. Right. Just don't put it in. But what was so great about it was that it really was this one idea that was distilled. And that's also kind of a key feature of a lot of Wade's games, that they're about one core idea and that all of the excess is kind of taken out of the game. Mm. He really doesn't. He has kind of this minimalist style. He doesn't want anything extra. He wants kind of the thematic vision to be as clear as possible. And so that um, kind of the thematic meeting can be can kind of emerge out of the interaction. Hmm. I mean, so it's a huge critical success. Eco is um, beloved within the industry. Goes on to influence games as different as The Last of Us, Journey, Portal. Mm-hmm. So all of these developers kind of play Eco and take something different from them and then mm-hmm. go out and make these incredibly different games, but still inspired by by Eco. By April 2003, critics are getting excited because there are rumors of an, equal, uh, an Eco sequel emerging, even despite the low sales. Mm-hmm. And so in April 2003, these blurry images leak out of Sony Japan, showing a character who kind of looks like a character from Eco with the horns on his head. And one of the screen captures had the word Nico on it, mm. uh, which some people thought meant next Eco. Or, yeah, new Eco or something yeah. like that. Can I ask, what like what's this studio like at the time? Like, are they part of a larger thing? Are they like a known entity? Like, what's... Um, they're a Sony... Sony-owned studio. Okay, okay. So they have some institutional support already at this point? Yes. Okay, okay. And yeah, and so the people start getting excited that maybe there's the sequel to Eco coming out. We later learned that these images, these Nico images, were from a prototype video showing a number of these horned characters taking down a giant monster. Mm. So it's very much the Steeds of Shadow of the Colossus, but initially it was envisioned as a co-op multiplayer game. Oh, okay. Where it was kind of a group of people, very much like a monster hunter going out and taking down this monster. Right. Uh, But that didn't come to be, and I think it's better for it. In May 2004, Sony trademarks Nico, so people start really thinking something's real. And then in uh, September 2004, Sony finally announces the game, um, which the title translated in English at that time is Wanda and the Colossus, or (laughs) Wanda and Colossus. That is not as epic as Shadow (laughs) of the Colossus. And part of this was just due to kind of uh, a translation issue where in Japanese, that would be a word that kind of is wander oh. or wanderer, but then it got kind of translated as Wanda, okay. which is oh, a woman's no. name here, right? So it's <laughs> it, it doesn't really work. That translation doesn't oh, quite work. No. But finally, there was confirmation that this game was real, that it was the next game from Weta's team. It was confirmed that uh, it was going to be a game centered on the idea of fighting a giant enemy or fighting giant bosses. Mm-hmm. Um, it came out that the the core premise would be, again, kind of a, about a boy trying to help a young girl, in this case, trying to revive a young girl, and that there would be a companion character, in this case, the horse, okay, which would be a companion much like Yorda in Eco. Hmm. And they said, okay, hold off, we'll show more at the Tokyo Game Show that year. Tokyo Game Show comes along in September 2004, and they show a trailer. And then at the end of 2004, more info starts coming out in Japanese magazines. And then finally, really, everybody gets their first glimpse and their first hands-on playthrough of it at E3 in 2005. So can you remind me, at this point, if stuff is coming out in Japanese games magazines, are Mm -hmm. Americans getting wind of it or do we still have a lot of separation? They're usually getting wind of it now. Somebody, some 
English magazine or or website will kind of re-report it. They'll have people okay. maybe doing on the, the ground in Japan. Yeah, some people doing the translation okay. or at least distilling the key points. Okay, so like Americans are hearing something about this in that yes. period. Okay. Because at this at this point too, I think this is I guess we've played some games where you had kind of an internet culture, but this would be the first one where in a lot of cases games criticism has moved more or less online by this right. point. Right, right. And so a lot of it you're getting um, updates right. about this game and uh, some of it coming from Japan. Yeah, Because, yeah, I'm just thinking about there. there's a good gap between TGS, like Tokyo Game Show and E3, right? That's mm-hmm. like September to June. So that's like a pretty long period. Oh, for... yeah. And magazines would always report on the Tokyo Game Show. Oh, OK. okay. Yeah. And if historically, they'd always have somebody usually would visit and then come back with a debrief. And, but for most North American audiences, it was really... And this was this was kind of my experience. It was really after E3 2005 that we started taking note and the hype cycle really started to begin. And so you kind of had that from May 2005 to the release in October. That is so short by today's <laughs> standards. Like, imagine only like having to diligently follow a game for like four months before it know, comes out. I know. <laughs> And so I kind of want to show you some of the things that um, got me excited for the game, got other people excited for the game, the E3 trailer, some print ads. And uh, so let's do that and we'll come right back and talk about them. Great. And we're back from looking at some of the preview material for Shadow of the Colossus. So one thing you looked at was the E3 trailer, which is probably the first time I ever saw the game in motion. So what did you think? Um, I was a little surprised actually by the tone, but in a good way, I would say. Like, first of all, the the music and atmosphere and everything of the first little bit, I was like, ah, yes, this time I have pr- correctly predicted <laughs> the vibe of this game. But then as it gets going, you have this much more like action adventure sort of up-tempo, like, let's go on it, like we're riding on a quest kind mm, of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I unexpectedly ended up really like excited to play it. Like <laughs> I was looking forward to playing this game, but mm-hmm. not in the like, wow, a fun adventure mm. sort of way. Whereas this gave me like we're going to have some very moody, tender parts. And also we're going to have really intense, like top notch mm-hmm. fights against these huge colossuses. And here they are. And they're so big. So yeah, I, it was effective. I, I like understand why people looked at this and were like, absolutely. Yeah. And in, so in the trailer, and as always, this is going to be in the show notes, show notes, so you can uh, check it out. They do highlight four colossi. These are the four they kind of always show in the preview. Okay, materials. so they stuck to this set, so they weren't spoiling all of them? Yeah. Okay. Some people would mention kind of other environments that you'll find colossi in, but really they stuck to kind of two bipedal ones, one that's kind of more um, animal, it looks like a buffalo. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then- Sky the, dragon. Yeah, the sky dragon that you that you kind of knew about. Yeah. And those are the those are the four to kind of show that there's going to be some variety but without giving too much mm-hmm. too much away. Uh, and so then apart from that, I showed you two kind of magazine cover stories. So all magazines would have covered this game in some capacity. Mm-hmm. But for most magazines, and especially kind of mainstream North American magazines, it was not a cover worthy story okay. or, or game. It was still a bit too niche too artsy. Eco didn't sell enough. So it wouldn't it wouldn't make the cover. Did we not really have like an enthusiasm for like more independent games at this time? 
I mean, the development of indie games as we understand them today wasn't really feasible at scale at that time. Hmm. Uh, but an appreciation for more experimental games mm-hmm. was definitely emerging. Okay. So two of the magazines that you looked at that did give oh, okay. Shadow the cover story were Edge Magazine and Play. And these magazines were both British, and Play was dedicated to PlayStation games. Probably be. Uh, but both of these magazines, apart from not being North American, were also dedicated, at least more so than something like a GamePro magazine, to covering games that they saw as unique, interesting, and maybe even artistic. Cool. And that's a word that we can unpack next episode <laughs> after you've played the game. That's cool. I had no sense that there... I mean, in hindsight, like, of course, it makes sense that there would be sort of uh, another line of um, publications or writing emerging about games in this time. But I just didn't know that that was like a print magazine thing that existed. That's yeah, cool. and, then, and then you get a lot of that emerging online at this time. Sure, as well. which that makes perfect right. sense because then we can have niches, mm-hmm. we can have like distinct small audiences for our weird tastes. But yeah, that's really cool. But yeah, was there anything that stood out from the covers? They both kind of took the same approach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you want to, if you kind of want to describe what you saw. They just sort of show one of the colossi and are like here he is right and they have your, your little and your your little guy on your horse for scale in the foreground yeah. like oh boy how's he gonna do this like that's sort of the the vibe yeah right shocking nobody a lot of the uh, way this game was talked about was in terms of the scale that was mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. easiest thing to communicate visually it's what the game did that was so unique i mean i think not for nothing like no, it I, really I, it yeah. is still striking like even being yeah. used to like i watch you play god of war recently like I've seen plenty of battles at this point where there's like huge scale differences. And this was still very effective mm-hmm. for communicating that the the long odds and the the disparity in power between these two characters. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I get why that would be an easy thing to communicate. Yeah, and one thing you you did uh, you noticed on the on the Edge magazine. So the Edge magazine, this was one of the publications that was kind of really ahead of the curb, especially amongst English speaking publications. Uh, because you saw that cover story was from November 2004, mm-hmm. um, and it did say Eco 2 Eco on two, it. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't yet sure what to call it. And in the article, they they mentioned that, oh, we, we've heard that this is called Wanda and Colossus, but we're just going to call it Eco 2 for now. Okay. Because it's probably not the final name. I get the sense that they got a lot of the same scoop that Famitsu did in 2004, okay. um, that no other uh, real North American publication was doing at the time, or at least cool. not at that scale, to give it a to kind of give it this cover story. Cool. Yeah, they did also have the note there about like your second chance to play yeah. the best game you never played. It's like, yeah. oh, there it is. They said the thing. <laughs> yeah, they were that magazine especially was a huge advocate for it was like eco. play eco. Yeah. Everybody, please. Yeah. And okay. we'll get into that okay. in, a, in a bit more. Cool. And the other thing I showed you was the was the print ad. So the the official advertising campaign. I love this ad. I think this ad was very effective. Okay. So what if you can describe it? So so, I mean, first of all, I think it's just like, I'm not, when was the last time I saw a print ad other than through this show? Like to mm-hmm. some degree, I think this is just like a medium that I'm not used right. to anymore. And so seeing like a clever execution of something, I'm like, oh, how novel. Yeah. And this is two page spread. Yep. It's big. Um, and what you basically have is, again, your Colossus in the in the main central ground, and then your, your little guy on horse in the foreground. And then you have what I thought at first was just a trail like this is the path that you will have to tread to like climb this colossus like a treasure map it was like from his foot to his head it winds like right around like around his gut and like up his arm and everything and when you look closer it's words and it's this narrative of like that sort of spells out some of the premise of the game it's like you will be drawn to like fight these i'm not going to be able to do it justice it was like it's like well worded and evocative and like it gives you the premise of what the game is about yeah beyond just killing these beasts yeah um 
and it it sort of reinscribes a sort of flavor into this mm-hmm. into this feeling of of battle and it talks about um one of the things that it foregrounds is which makes sense is that your weapons aren't going to be the most important thing in your fight against these creatures because like you know like having a slightly better sword isn't going to make a difference if you're just hacking away at this thing's foot mm-hmm. so you're going to have to use your mind <laughs> yeah the <laughs> one like, what was it the weapon that the colossus cannot see your and mind neither can you oh, yeah, nor right. can you which like on the one hand is hokey and corny but on the other hand I'm like okay that makes sense and strategically too so eco was more or less a puzzle game okay and so I think this is this is one of these ads that's trying to have it both ways, saying, right, there's kind of action for the action fans, mm-hmm. but we didn't leave the eco fans out that there is still a mental aspect to this game. I guess the thing that I do like about this is, um, I mean, this is like a classic video game thing and like, it's fine. I don't super <laughs> care. Um, but it is kind of stupid that so many games will put you up against an absolutely enormous boss that it makes no sense that you're like little you know, your rogue's dagger or or your like little sword <laughs> makes any impact on as if upgrading your your little daggers or whatever or your bow and arrow will like make a huge difference when you're hunting something that looks like it should have like an elephant skin and stuff. <laughs> um, so it, it makes sense that it's like you can't you can't solo these things. Like if this is just a, a battle of who's like tougher and stronger, like obviously you will lose. <laughs> and like we're not going to be cute about that. So you have to like outsmart and and be clever about this. So yeah, I don't know. This really works for me as a conceit. And like, on the one hand, there's lots about it that I think from a less skillful dev or in a in a not as good looking game would be kind of eye rolly. Like, you have to use the power of your mind. In this one, I'm like, okay. Okay, so you buy it. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. I'm in. I'll use my mind. So another thing that I think is worth talking about when looking at the the previews of this game is how it really had to straddle this space between mainstream action game and more artistic mm-hmm. um, game grounded in in emotion, mm-hmm. which is kind of a, a difficult line to straddle. And so you really did have a split. And so some mainstream magazines, for example, like a Game Pro, their main concern through their previews was whether the game was going to be substantial enough, whether a game where you're just kind of fighting boss creatures would be enough. Hmm. Right. They'd say in one of the previews, right, that it it meets kind of your visual expectations but they're worried that the game itself lacks excitement. They said by playing it a little bit that they felt like riding around aimlessly on a horse in a humongous land didn't seem really appealing. And that battling the Colossus wasn't a very tall order. We have high expectations, but let's hope it's more engaging than what we saw in the demo. Games Robot does not like (laughs) this game. (laughs) Right. And then then in another hands-on from the same magazine, they said it looks amazing, but the question remains, how long can a game that's basically a string of Titanic boss battles hold the interest of adventure-seeking gamers. Hmm. So, right for them, the concern was: Is this actually going to scratch the action itch? Is it going to be a, right. a big enough, substantial enough adventure? This one experience that is the most important experience, we think. Yeah. Will it do that? When, like, maybe the game wants to do that, and maybe it doesn't. In yeah. Fact. Okay. And then, on the other hand, when you had these magazines like Edge and Play that were more invested in in what it does differently. Mm-hmm. Um, they were concerned that after Eco didn't do so well, that the game might be leaning too hard on, on oh, the action side. Oh, like, oh, they want to sell copies, so they're going to put, like, more action-y combat in to make it more palatable to mainstream audiences or something like that? Yeah. So, okay. So Edge, like I said, was um, known for championing unconventional games. They often talk about how frustrated they were by the state of the industry. And this is 2005, and right, this is something you hear all the time. Yeah, I, I've heard that one. <laughs> and right, they said, I mean, in an editorial, that there's only so much generic 
Formula One driving, first person shooting, strategy devising, BMXing players are willing to indulge in. Um, so again, we have a time when the BMX <laughs> genre. <laughs> Not all of those. Good news for them on that one front. <laughs> um, and in their preview of at that time, Eco 2, that their big concern was that maybe it's going to be too gamey. Okay. And so they, they have this editorial that, I don't know, it might be even worth reading kind of at length because... Um, I think there's some there's some themes here that we're going to want to pick up in the next episode after you've actually played the game. Okay. There's also some things here that I think will resonate from discourse around games now, 10 years ago when you started replaying. It's stuff that I think we tend to think is recent, but it's really not. Cool. So here's how the editorial starts from um, Edge Magazine. Ever find yourself trying to explain the merits of a video game to someone who clearly sees them as an inferior form of entertainment? <laughs> oh, no. It's a problem that plagues many avid gamers trying to justify their fascination with taking on virtual adventures rather than embarking on real-life ventures of their own. The problem not lies not so much with the inability of gamers to express what's good about gaming, but rather the fact that few games are truly beautifully presented. You can gesticulate all you like at a pile of pixel-perfect simulations, but few developers can fashion a game that has the same sort of magical charm and appeal of, say, a classic Disney film. Eco is one of the few games that could boast that sort of appeal, but even the best game in the world won't sell if nobody knows about it. With the average punter unconsciously looking for a quick fix, or for quick fix gratification in their games rather than artistic fulfillment, it's easy to see why Eco slipped between most radars. Gamers who care about the idea of games as art can't continue to let this happen unless they're prepared to accept that the suits have won and that artistic focus shall always take a backseat in game development. But why should gamers care what the art crowd think? Because that crowd is overflowing with outstanding and creative ideas, but they're often struggling to find an outlet they can make a living from. If gaming becomes a more viable outlet for their imaginations, then it's the gamers who will ultimately reap the benefits. As you'll discover in our feature on Eco 2, the wheels are already in motion to turn one of the most beautiful games ever made into something more familiar with health bars and other furniture people feel lost without. Do the future of gaming a favor. Help point out the merits of games like Eco to the less discerning. <laughs> that has so many great flavors that we still get a taste of. It includes dum uh, dum punching, <laughs> like the idea that audiences are just too stupid for this. Uh, it includes the uh, economic imperative to produce art, like, well, we have to financially reward it or people <laughs> won't do it. It includes bullying to share their taste it includes so many things that and yet at the same time it's like good <laughs> it's like one of those cases where you're like i basically agree with this person but don't like them mm -hmm. at all <laughs> which is still true so often <laughs> yeah and it's so funny especially in retrospect to see that people were worried that um shout of the classes was just going to be a sellout mm -hmm. like this mm -hmm. is this is potentially this classic sellout anxiety. Yeah. Out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and i mean and they so they have an interview there too with weta who does say that um he thinks that eco his own game was balanced too heavily towards appealing to critics hmm. and that once he does want the new game to have more popular appeal and that shadow of the colossus does require more action skills compared to eco though there are the puzzle elements as well hmm. and so it, this is something the developer is conscious of um and it's it's kind of can he please both of these crowds? Mm -hmm. um, and is that even something that's worth aspiring to? Or is it just a futile endeavor? And I guess that's not a settled question in 2005. I mean, if it's settled now. I feel like we have more games that ambitiously try to do both now. 
without seeing this as quite such an either or proposition. Mm -hmm. But I guess that's less true at this point. Yeah, and it is it is this case of um, the creator wanting more people to experience his game. So he's still emotion is still kind of the key component. Mm -hmm. But Weta says in that interview that in Eco, he wanted or the team wanted to strip away any of the visual elements that got in the way of the quote emotional investment. And so the team didn't want it to look like a video game. But now he thinks that might have restricted them in a bunch of ways. Hmm. And so now he says that, quote, if those indicators or indications are necessary to make the game more fun, we will include them. Hmm. But if they aren't necessary, we won't. So there might be maps and health bars, but maybe not. They're still balancing at this stage. Cool. That's really uh, interesting. Right, and, the, and this preview kind of ends with this, uh, with the previewer hoping that it can balance art and, and commerce. Mm -hmm. um, which again is not something we've we've gotten away from. I think that we still kind of live with that discourse quite a bit. Yeah. And similarly, the um, the play preview kind of took on similar tones. And and just for some context, play the editor in chief at this point, two thousand five, is our good friend, Earthworm Jim fanboy himself, Dave Halverson. How does he get to the UK? <laughs> I, I don't. One day, we, maybe we should. Just we just do need a, the career of this one guy. Yeah, he like, seems. What? He's everywhere. Every time he shows up, it's in a different publication and doing something wild. <laughs> <laughs> maybe this is an exception but so far he said only wild things on this podcast <laughs> in uh he he's not the one who does the preview so he's just the editor-in-chief of okay. this magazine but he is kind of excited for the game but the person who did write the preview for play uh their big concern was whether or not shadow would be able to resonate emotionally like eco did for them um so they were asking right even if this game is more gamey can shadow still have a strong emotional impact on the player uh, so after you've played the game, we can get some of your thoughts on this issue. But for now, maybe we can get some context uh, into your history with emotional games. Uh, so let's talk about games that have made you feel feelings. Yeah, so I think the first thing to say is that uh, I am pretty emotional and pretty easily moved by things in, I, I would say, all media. Like it's not exclusive to games, although we can talk about what parts might be exclusive to games. Um, it's It's very... Uh, idiosyncratic though. Like I know lots of stuff that um, really impacted other people just doesn't hit that hard for me. Um, we can talk about what some of those things are, but I think it's it's sort of similar to what you find scary or what you find funny where like um, what you find sad or moving um, is really closely hooked into who you are and your experiences and your loves and your fears and your aspirations and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, there have been a ton of games that really, really emotionally impacted me in different ways. Yeah, and since we're talking about this period, 2005, when maybe critics en masse are starting to say that, hey, maybe our medium can make us feel things. <laughs> what if we did that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and again, it's not like nobody has said this before, but this is really the time when people's eyes are starting to open to... Mm -hmm. Um, certain the potential of games to kind of work on people emotionally. Mm -hmm. It's not that they hadn't in the past, but people are finally starting to see this as something that um, might be meaningful. Right. And maybe the emotions could be more than just like adrenaline rushes. Right, right, right. Um, right. Or fear. Right. Uh, there could be some kind of more nuanced emotions at play in games. I don't want to call this like a stupid thing that they're thinking about, but <laughs> it just, I think it's a function of what time I came back to games, right? That like, it seems so weird to me that there was a point where we, like people felt like they had to prove or or like be able to articulate how games produce emotion. Like I 
I don't think it's just because I'm an emotional person, but like oh, obviously, you're, obviously you're, games like oh, make people feel things. You're gonna love our games as art discussion. Yeah, <laughs> I. That's the thing. It's it's like that. That is so kind of a settled point in mm. the whole era that I've been back with games. I mean, I guess for you especially because of the stuff you're attracted to, mm-hmm. and I mean, come even coming back in through classic JRPGs. Which I think was one of the genres that even prior to Shadow of the Colossus, people would right. acknowledge that maybe they cried when, spoiler for Final Fantasy VII, when Eris dies. Yeah, or, or like in, in six, like the very sad, like post-apocalypse, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so I think there is a, at least the acknowledgement that certain genres mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, could, could be emotional. Mm-hmm. I mean, anything with story as a heavy element, you're going to have points where it's, I think, emotional. So I think that brings up a good point. Do you find that story is really what makes games emotional for you? I mean, a lot of the time, yes, but it doesn't always have to be super, you know, JRPG style story. Like I I think about one of the sort of formative game experiences I had when I started getting back into games, which was a slightly cliche answer, but playing Journey. It was like maybe the first like art game I like I cringe using that term but I think you know what I mean (laughs) that I played when I started getting back into games and I just remember being like overwhelmed um by that game on so many different fronts and like the narrative was part of it but not all of it like it so yeah maybe we can unpack that a little bit of what it was about your experience with journey was it kind of the loose thread of a narrative was it the general aesthetic was it the beautiful music it was, Were, was it anything mechanical? So many of those things. So I, I know, um, first of all, like big cycles of like life and death and stuff are, tend to be themes that like get me and Journey is all about that. But also, I mean, I remember a case where um, I was being helped by a player who was like in the white ropes, like, you know, the, mm-hmm. the people who've like mastered it kind of get white ropes. And he was- They get the white ropes because they found all of the hidden scarf fragments. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So there was this, I was struggling with the part where you're like in like the Valley of Shadows and there's the big scary dragon thing Mm -hmm. that's like chasing you. And so I was having trouble with that part and this white robe came along and helped me like figure out when to go and where to hide. And like just this, this like kinship and connection that I felt with this person who's a complete stranger. I have no idea who this person was. Um, I'm probably glad that I don't know who they were. (laughs) Like, thank God this game doesn't have voice chat, truly. (laughs) But yeah, it just it was it was like really moving. I really felt like I I was sincerely helped by this person. I mean, I I definitely I think I cried like three or four times during this game, including the entire last 20 minutes. But at least one or two of them was definitely pretty purely aesthetic. Like I remember the sort of really famous iconic level where you're gliding down the glistening sand and you have like you start in the part that's the the uh, temple with the sh- with the shadows of the arches that you're going through. Do you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Yeah, I definitely remember that. Just the way the music was coming and the light hitting the sand, and just it was just so gorgeous. Like it just, I just felt such like I was having this sort of like ecstatic mm. experience of like of just real beauty. Yeah, I, I had an experience too with the white robe that was that was kind of similar. That I think was the highlight, and it's the reason that I have a white robe because I just met this person this mm-hmm. white robe mm-hmm. who then must wait, notice that i didn't have a white robe and then proceeded to guide me to where all the pieces of scarf were that's so cool 
Yeah, and it was that was I've played this game a number of times. That I think is my my favorite playthrough. Uh, I really felt a bond with this with this person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and yeah, because it is purely uh, kind of this purely mechanical emotional ex- experience that would have been tainted if there was anything. <laughs> yeah. like real voice chat beyond just kind of the musical notes that you can make the like beep boop that you yeah. yeah um there were moments i know of this game where you had uh, maybe emotional <laughs> oh, reactions that yeah. the game didn't intend for you to have yeah this was also one of my first formative experiences of a thing that happens for me from time to time which is i think like reading against the text or like against the experience i think it was reading against you. you yeah so there was one point um where I had been sort of navigating through this tough space with uh, another player, not the white robe, but a, a different one. And we climbed this huge thing uh, and gone through this really like difficult space. And you get to the top, you climb to the top of this thing, and uh, there's you there's sort of a magic carpet type thing that spawns, and you get on it and you ride it off out of the level. So this is a one-player game, and I think this game assumed that only one person would be arriving there at the a a time. So I get up there at the same time as my partner. There are two little magic carpets there, one for each of us, but they're so close together that my buddy just hops on (laughs) and both of them leave with him. So he rides, he or she rides both of them off into the sunset. I am left behind just like with nothing else respawning in. I tried like running around and coming back to get it to like respawn. Nothing. I just like the thing that I just remember thinking over and over again was like, that bitch checked my ride. Like it was just gone. It was gone. <laughs> I had to redo that entire level. I had to restart. So there was that. That was one that was one thing. The one that maybe actually connects better to our conversation about emotion is at the very end of the game, the very, very end, like when you've sort of gone through this sort of experience of death and you're in this um sort of like artistic interpretation of heaven or something like that. Um, And you're supposed to be just flowing along with like all these souls or other people or players or however you want to interpret this. And it looked like a bunch of them were going up and over this waterfall. And so I was trying to jump up and get over this waterfall and I was almost there, but I just couldn't get high enough. And like, I kept seeing all the people I'm supposed to be with, like going over this and like, I felt so left behind and like in this moment that's supposed to be just really fluid and like we're together and we're like with all this momentum, I just felt like everyone, into the wall. Yeah, everyone going on without me, like all the loneliness I've ever felt in my <laughs> life just coming down on me. Everyone is leaving. And it honestly, I think I cried through the whole last like 20 <laughs> minutes of this game. Partially because of this one, I mean, of course, like 10 seconds after this, I realized, oh, no, I'm supposed to go up, like, whatever, to the right and around, like, that's not the right path. But I still sincerely had this moment where I was like, oh, my God, like, everyone is crossing over without me. Um, And it's not what the game was trying to give (laughs) me, but it's what I got. And like, man, that game is so beautiful and so impactful. But also, like, I bumped into it in like, at like at cross purposes in so many funny ways. Yeah, uh, that game's great. Yeah, like Journey really is kind of the the total package where it's kind of aesthetic and narrative and music and mm-hmm. mechanics all work together. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any examples of something that might be more purely mechanical that uh, made you feel emotional? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about when you were talking about eco and about, I think you said push R1 to like take your your partner's hand and lead them through the through the area 
was my playthrough of Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, big spoilers incoming. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a game that uh, is basically about two boy- little boys who are brothers who have to go on this sort of adventure to help their dying father. Um yeah, and how you played is that you um, you control both of the brothers simultaneously. So you have the the right analog stick and kind of the right side of the controller controls mm-hmm. one brother and the left side of the controller controls the other brother, um, which is what I thought was really cool and why I recommended it to Michelle. With no mention of what happens at the end of this game. Why would I spoil it? Content warning <laughs> for sibling death. I tried to play this on a weeknight where I was just like, Let's have a nice game experience. <laughs> Dimitri recommended this. And I just got punched in the face with emotion for several hours. So the the reason why I bring this up really, apart from the fact there's this sort of interesting thing where one each half of the controller is one of the brothers, is after the older brother dies, first of all, the younger brother with just the half of the controller that controls him, you have to physically bury his body like, it's not a cutscene. You have to, like, work the shovel and bury the brother you have that just died, which is extremely affecting. But the part that really, really, really got me and that I will never forget as being one of the saddest things that I've ever experienced in games is the the younger brother's making his way home. And um, earlier in the game, when you have both of them still alive, they swim kind of together. Like, the older brother has to help the the younger one get across long distances. And so the younger one is is trying to get across this body of water, this little pond that he has to cross to get home. And he just can't make it. Like, you can feel him struggling. And, like, as a player, you so clearly remember that, like, the older one always helped him across this. And what you have to figure out to do is basically do the, the like, move the older brother's joystick and, and like, trigger to do the motion of, like, how he would have helped the younger one across the pond and and help him swim like you basically do the act of like giving that care and like have being that that person who's gone who's like still giving guidance and help to the the brother who is still there and still alive and it's like it's so so powerful it's very hard to describe out of context but it's like i i felt the direction the connection so clearly between like what i realized i had to do with my hands and what that meant about like what's happening or or the feeling in this world. Yeah, and Michelle was mad that I didn't spoil this for her up front. You should have told me that there would be <laughs> big feelings. Okay. You don't have to tell me what. I don't know. But what be I'm... like, hey, do this when you are like in a good place and you have time to calm down after. You usually don't respond to things about Stories about kids. I didn't think you'd have no, they, big feelings. These, these ones they demonstrate the connection. There's not they're not just some abstract kids. It's like you the whole first three quarters of the game, you feel them, you work them helping each other, and like you feel the connection between them, them specifically. Okay, and I, I kind of lied because I do know that you can be affected by stories about kids. Yeah. because uh, the other thing that we played together. Yes. I think we both had an emotional experience with uh was The Walking Dead season 1. Yeah, I would say we played this together and I think we both were so emotionally drained by this that we actually never went back and played any of the other seasons no, of this game. I followed it up. I just made sure that Clementine was still exactly, okay. Exactly, exactly. Um oh, Clementine's still alive. Okay, we're and good. And that we're good. was it. All I want to know is that Clem is still alive. 
Yeah, we were we were excited to play the second season, and then when it rolled around, we, we were just like, "No, I think." What we're if good. we don't? What <laughs> if we don't? It can only get worse. But that's an interesting one because that game is so narrative focused. Mm-hmm. But I still think that it was emotional because of the mechanics and because of the choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that and this game really did choice in a different way, in a way that is that's much more kind of impactful and meaningful than in most other choice-based games of that era, like something like I'm Bioshock. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, you know, we can say Mass Effect here. That's okay. Sure. (laughs) Like that's, those are games that on the surface or how they talk about themselves is very like your choices drive the story. But like, you know, so there's this really sort of insincere thing that happens in like, especially a lot of Bioware games where it's like you meet a new character and they like tell you their deal and you sort of have the opportunity to either tell them to Go for the thing that they want to do or like, you know, I I don't know. That's such a good idea. Like an early plot with Garrus is he like wants to blow up a civilian ship because there's like one escaped criminal on it. And you can be like, yeah, get him. Or like, have you considered that revenge isn't always good and this would cost civilian life? And he's like, oh, Shepard, I never thought about it that way. It's like, that's not how people work, right? Like, and that's not how Walking Dead is at all. It's not like you telling giving verbal instructions to tell characters how to think it's like you make your choices and then you just get that little like clementine will remember that at the bottom and you're like oh oh no yeah you feel like your choices are so much more meaningful you feel so guilty if Mm -hmm. you do something that might help you out of a situation, but you feel that it is kind of immoral. And then when it says that a character, especially this child, remembers that. Yeah. Um, again, whether or not that actually pays off, it's still such like a brilliant piece of information to give the player. Yeah. I know you can turn it off, but I, I never would, especially in that first one. I, I think like it, w- it was that telling you that another character would remember what you did and would be impacted by your choice. Yeah. It was a great idea. Clementine is kind of your adoptive daughter-ish mm-hmm. in this game. And it also just, I feel, is so much more realistic about how people work and how, like, parenting works. You know, like, that do as I say, not as I do has, Mm -hmm. like, never worked, right? Like, kids actually learn from watching what people do, not, like, what you tell them. So, yeah, that game was so, so impactful. And it really, like, it, it felt like things were happening as a consequence of what you did very concretely. Yeah, there is really something about playing this game as opposed to other narrative games where it was dramatically different playing it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to watching it, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. uh, so maybe to, to wrap this conversation up, one thing I am wondering, though, is if you think that a game could be emotional purely based on mechanics or is it because hmm. I think I think you've had the experience of some games being emotional purely based on narrative. Oh, or yeah, theme. for sure. For sure. So just like a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think the flip side could be true or do you think you need that kind of aesthetic wrapper to give the mechanics context? Yeah, this is a really good question. I mean, I can think of cases where I've been moved uh, just by the aesthetics, but that's mm-hmm. not exactly what we're talking mm-hmm. about, right? Um, so a game like uh, um, Amanita's uh botanicula just happened to push all my buttons in terms of what I think is like beautiful and and touching without really having a narrative and I was like very transported by mm-hmm. that game um just purely because of the way the world responds like as you touch it and and like move things and like the beauty of the art and the, and the sound design mm-hmm. and everything 
So I think off the top, I mean, I can think of like parts of games that have narrative where there was something pretty purely mechanical that was moot. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. thinking now of the um, the very ending of Near Automata when um, mm-hmm. other you have the experience of like other players sacrificing their save file, which like actually deletes your save file to come and and help you in this sort of final sequence, which like I again openly wept through that entire thing and did also sacrifice my save. Um, I did not. To pay- you didn't? Oh my God. I had some un- what is wrong with you? I had some unfinished business in the game. Did you do it? No. Well, okay, well, okay, so oh here's, my no, God. So here's what happened. I was going to do it, but then my all of my saves actually got deleted from my PlayStation. That's when I lost PT. Oh, so okay, okay, okay. It was around okay. that same time. Okay. So I was intending to wrap some things up in here and then go back and finish it. And do it. And do it. Okay. Okay. All right. I still yeah. kind of think you're a monster, but yeah, that's that's fine. That's fine. I, I feel bad for you because you lost PT, and I know you really wanted to hang on to that, so we'll just let this go. But uh, I'm on to you. Okay, maybe we should just leave this topic there for now, but we can revisit it next episode and in future episodes. Uh, but for now, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about boss fights. Okay, let's talk about bosses and boss fights. All right. Not big boss or the boss. (laughs) No one specific. (laughs) Just in general. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, before we get into this, I this is stupid, objectively, but like it's weird to me that we call them bosses. Because usually (laughs) what it just means is like the biggest, strongest guy in an in an area in a space, or like at the end of the level. Like he's not. Okay, first of all, it doesn't mean that he's in a a power hierarchy <laughs> with the other beings in the area. And like sometimes. In, sometimes. And but more so like in any case where all your characters are humans, it makes no sense that the boss is like the the toughest to fight. <laughs> like that's in what like social hierarchy is the person at the top actually the toughest like in a brawl <laughs> like none honestly it's this is like pure like uh real world boss propaganda and i won't stand for it it's like the idea that that the thing that is in power is obviously the best and strongest and like that's just that's wild that's like absolutely ludicrous maybe in the animal kingdom in some <laughs> context that could make sense but like or it would make sense if like the boss has oh you fight the boss's bodyguard. You know what I mean? Like it could make sense that the big boss of so just in want, people has like the best protection, like the best muscle. So like you have to fight them to get to the but then the boss should all whatever is used the term boss is used should always be like some little pencil necked like wiener <laughs> that's just telling everyone else what to do. Or we need a different word. This sincerely bothers me. It's very stupid, but I I really do like hate that we just are collapse like whoever is you don't the, think bowser's the, the toughest no i think he's the toughest but so we just call like him made the boss him his bodyguard i mean he's like a fictional dragon so maybe he's the exception that he falls into my like animal kingdom rule of, I think like, he's a koopa the, okay. the king of the koopas okay 
Okay. In fact, the thing is, the fact that you're using this ludicrous example <laughs> means that you basically think that I'm right. Okay, so uh, we'll put the Michelle's we can boss put a creed in aside. What is what is he the boss of? What is one of these like fictional colossi the boss of? Who are his employees? <laughs> what goods do they produce? <laughs> are they? Can you pass along a CV to this boss? Are they a good employer? We haven't played the game yet, so maybe you can. It makes no. <laughs> this is all capitalist propaganda. Okay. I don't enjoy we're gonna it. We're going to put the, put the, okay, bo- we can the put anti- a pin in boss that. screed aside. We can put a pin in that. But the point is that we actually don't like bosses in general. And so we should probably explain maybe why we don't like boss fights. Um, for me, boss fights are just the thing that gets in the way of the game, of the yeah. parts of the game that I enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, we'll put a pause on all the good flow that you have and do this other thing. Yeah. They always, so rarely do they seem earned or do mm-hmm. they do they actually seem to be as climactic as the game wants us to think they are? Yeah. They feel obligatory so much of the time. It's just like, well, how else are we going to end this level? People are going to want a boss. We better put a boss there. It's like, no, you like, yeah. So, and often <laughs> they're just like a bigger version with like more like HP or whatever of just a regular guy. Like there's no, there's no like special concept. There's nothing like there. It's just like, oh, just do a harder one now. Yeah, in some cases, right, there are, but in a lot of a lot of cases, it does just seem to be this perfunctory yeah. thing that or, you have to get through. Or sometimes if they do have a concept, it ends up being more frustrating than fun. Right. Like, it'll yeah. be something where, like, ooh, you have to knock this, and then, like, this little finicky mechanism that, like, we didn't have the resources to refine to be really smooth because it's only used in this one place, in this one so box. You're probably so thinking of your liquid snake final battle. <laughs> just doing your punching Naming kicks. no snakes. No, I, but I mean, that's that's other places right, too, right? Yeah. Like, it's hardly just those games. Um, so, so what is the first boss that you remember um, from your old history of games? Oh, my God. Thank you for asking. <laughs> so early on when I was playing Game Boy... One of the like four games that I played with any regularity was Kid Icarus. I think it's of Myth and Monsters is that one. Well, whatever one was on the original Game Boy. So I had this game and I liked this game. I spent a lot of time with it. I never in all my time got past the first Minotaur boss. So partially I was a kid, right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't I had never played a game where pattern recognition was part of mm. fighting a boss, really. And so I didn't really like think to do that but also i think he's recognized as legitimately a pretty hard boss i, I went and looked this guy up i i think saying that he has a pattern that could be recognized is giving him a bit too much yeah credit. he's wild it's a very long slog it you don't have a so lot of health long he kills you very quickly you don't have a lot of upgrades at that time it's just i i probably played this game off and on struggling with this guy for like four or five years i would pick <laughs> it up do my best get to this roadblock, get wiped out by him and just be like, I'm never like, I really, really liked that game. And because of that shitty boss, I was just like, I'm never going to get to see anything of this game except like the first three levels, which like a proficient player can play in like under 10 minutes because I can't figure out how to do this one thing. Like I still haven't seen 80%, 80 or 90% of that game that I spent like years trying to deal with. So like, I don't know. I just like I got locked out of this whole experience I was having because of this like ludicrous, <laughs> like arbitrary difficulty spike, like right out the gate, like in the first boss. It's, it's kind of this formative experience 
for you. It, <laughs> yeah. it, it explains so much. Yeah. And so, yeah. What if, right? Like, what <laughs> if that's, what if the reason that I like get flustered and nervous whenever and like frustrated whenever I can't immediately figure something out is because I'm afraid I'm about to be cut off from the entire <laughs> rest of the game that I'm enjoying. I'll just never be able to get past it. <laughs> I still haven't. Like I probably, I'm sure like if I picked it up within a little while, could like figure out how to beat it now. Yeah, but maybe we'll do that one day. That actually would be can... very healing. I think. <laughs> well, revenge. You've had this grudge oh, God, for too Kid long. Icarus. I will never play Pit in Super Smash Brothers. <laughs> I won't do it. It's too hurtful. <laughs> But yeah, I mean that, yeah. So that was just like, it wasn't fun. It was just incredibly, incredibly hard. Mm -hmm. It was like, just, man, that sucked. That was the first boss I ever truly hated. <laughs> I mean, and so often the the boss and the character is so much more interesting than the yeah, fight. Yeah, totally. Right? Uh, maybe not in terms of this Minotaur, who I, I don't yeah, know if you've met dumb, before yeah. at that point. No. but. Especially modern day bosses where the games kind of go to great lengths to, to create a villain. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. they really get you invested in taking down this villain. Yeah. And then their boss fight is just so anticlimactic yeah. and you just wish it wasn't there because it completely undercuts the character of the villain, the yeah. villainous nature of the character. You know what this really makes me think of is uh, my experience, I think I've talked about it before, um, with Big Daddies and Bioshock. I was so scared of big daddies at first until you start fighting them right yeah i guess they're they're not i guess they're they're kind of play a boss role yeah i mean yeah so this is like a little bit of a maybe you call them a boss maybe you don't I probably mean, in the game they're more like a moving mini boss or like an elite unit something like that i mean nothing nothing does come closer to the connotations of boss than big daddy big daddy <laughs> Yeah, I just remember like how quickly those things went from so intense, so intimidating, so scary, so impactful to like trivial mm -hmm. over the course of like one fight or two times fighting them because they aren't that hard. They don't really do anything that special. And like by the time you're in a position where you're allowed to fight them, you're more than capable mm -hmm. of taking them down. Even like me who wasn't good at games at that time, like mm -hmm. was like, oh, I handled this. Like we're fine now. Yeah, and sometimes that's the point of the boss, but in Bioshock, I don't think, I think you were supposed to kind of be yeah. intimidated by them throughout. I think you're supposed to kind of grow sympathetic towards them mm -hmm, by the mm -hmm. end, but it doesn't, it shouldn't have made them any less intimidating. And this might be a good place to talk about the function of bosses in games, mm -hmm. uh, right? Because like, as you said, they do seem to be obligatory, but they often have different, um, different roles or different functions within the game. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the function is very much to make the player feel like they've progressed or gained strength, right? right? right so there, right. there are some bosses that are just meant to be relatively easy, just mm -hmm. so to communicate how much you've grown. Especially late game, right? Like they feel trivial later on. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Mother Brain in Super Metroid kind right. of functions like that, where right. um, it's really not that difficult of a fight. Right. Um, you're kind of just dodging and then you kind of get your upgraded beam that you can just destroy it her just with. just annihilates. Yeah. But even before that, the fight itself is pretty much just a kind of a cherry on top of the adventure it's mm -hmm. not the most difficult um fight it's it's this moment where as samus you have all of your weapons and you can finally feel empowered um, so that might be um that's a case where it's intentional mm -hmm. in a lot of cases i think this is unintentional yep uh thinking about the final boss of the witcher 3 which was horrible for this like so aridan i think is his name he's just like a magic power elf that you've been it's cooler than it sounds that you've been chasing for this whole hundred hour game and by the time you get to that end fight you just like 
stomp him. There's like nothing special about that battle. It's just it just peters out at the end. Like it's so anticlimactic. Yeah, this happens in JRPGs a lot, especially the way you play them because you over level. <laughs> if you do side quests, mm-hmm. and I understand why it's hard, honestly, in some ways, because like you have to have a boss that works. You're trying to have a boss that works whether a player doesn't do a whole bunch of side quests and just wants to blast through or wants to really take their time exploring and do every little thing. And that's that's like 10 or 15 levels different sometimes. Yeah, like I know when you played Pokemon, like the Elite Four who's built up to the whole oh, game, yeah. you just kind of Trivial. wipe through them with your main. Yeah. And it's just, uh, it, it's very anticlimactic. Yeah. Um, there is the flip side when games do the thing where they take an early game boss who then becomes a common enemy yeah. later on. And that I actually really like. Yeah, actually me too. And I think that's a much better way to communicate growth than character progression without yeah. squandering the actual last boss. Yeah, the feeling of like, oh, I used to be so scared of these guys. Yeah. Of this this guy was so hard before and now he's just like running around in the wild. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so let's uh, maybe talk about some other uh, boss functions. I think the, the initial function of the boss was mostly to be a reward for the player. Hmm. Um, and at least that's kind of how I grew up with bosses, where the boss was this time where you'd see a, you kind of get exposed to a unique character model. Mm. It was a sprite that was a bit more detailed and often larger than most of the other enemies that you fought. Right. Um, often, again, I talked before about how much I loved uh, looking through the manuals. And often those characters would be hinted at in the manual. You'd see a sketch of them. Okay. And I'd really be excited about uh, what they'd actually look like in the game. Right. For example, so I think the first boss that I remember was the boss of Wonder Boy on okay. the Sega Master System. Right. It was my favorite. It was, um, that might be the first video game I ever played. Right. Um, it's definitely the first one I remember. And so the boss of that is just this guy referred to as King. And he's pretty straightforward. You kind of go through this level and he just kind of emerges out of his lair and he just moves kind of from the right side of the screen to the left and you just kind of jump up and throw your hatchet in his face. <laughs> okay. But... And then when you defeat him, his head would come off oh. and be replaced by a different head. So all of the end level bosses had the same body, but a different animal oh, that's head. so weird. And I was always so excited to see what the next head would be. Okay. Right? Like okay. it was, so getting to the boss was always a reward for me in, the, in that Interesting. sense. Interesting. Okay. Similarly, I think fighting games do this really, really well, um, where they kind of hint at what of the boss to come and you're kind of really excited to get to him to see... Uh, what his kind of what his moveset mm-hmm. is. So again, like the original Mortal Kombat, I'm pretty sure in the arcade at the starting screen or, or even of the home version, they show you that Goro exists. For oh, example. yeah, yeah, who's yeah. Not, who's not the final boss, but the second final boss. He's intense though. You're like, yeah, whoa, you see what this is kind that? Of four-armed creature yeah. and you just wonder what is yeah yeah one what's his character model going to look like when i actually get to him <laughs> and how is he going to move and what's his moveset going to be mm-hmm. um same even with shang Tsung in mortal Kombat, wondering what is what his moveset's going to be so in, in that sense it was um i did find getting to the bosses rewarding it was a little treat that rewarded me for my competency up until that point hmm. maybe we see this a little bit now with like secret bosses yeah. Like where you have to go way off the path. Because now we sort of expect, you know, it's a predictable part of games. But I mean, we knew the boss was coming in these games. Sure, just, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I think the delight at seeing them might have petered out a little bit mm-hmm. Right, in where, a lot of games. Yeah. Whereas now still like finding a secret boss, especially being like, oh, what am I going to get for this? And everything is like sort of maybe has a bit of that vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there are the bosses that 
have kind of more of an in-game function. So I think the most common type that people talk about is kind of the boss that serves as the final exam. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the boss fight where you're asked to put together all of the skills you've learned up until that point. Yep. This is the the Zelda bosses. Right. Right. The where the the dungeon loop is that you go into the dungeon, you get a new item, you solve a bunch of puzzles using that item. So it iterates mm -hmm. with that item and then you use that item and show off all your new skills to right. face a large creature. Right. And then kind of rinse and repeat. Yeah. And then it that also makes me think of sort of a, a related but like inverted version of that, which is like the the teacher. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of uh, in Metal Gear Solid, like the fight against the hind, where you get the the stinger, which is the like um, air to um, ground to air missile thing. And so it's like teaching you through this boss fight how to use that. Like that's that's the the first introduction of of that weapon. Yeah, I tend to not enjoy those. <laughs> Personally, I think those are incredibly annoying where the, like the first time you use something or the first time Is you have this to high stakes yeah, like Yeah. I don't know, it stresses me out. Yeah, fair. But it it's one of the things that happens. Yeah, and there's also there's also the type of boss and you see these in JRPGs a lot where they're pretty much just there to be kind of a level check or this test of strength. Mm. So as a way to communicate to you that you've either achieved the right level to proceed or you've mastered the systems sufficiently to be able to kind of proceed to the next part of the game. Yeah. Like you remember, like there's always those bosses that seem to be this huge difficulty spike where you either have to go and grind a bunch or you have to figure out some of the battle systems that maybe you haven't engaged with yet in order to beat him. Yeah. Sometimes that can be frustrating if really it's just like forcing you to accept like a really unbalanced jump and <laughs> how hard, you know what I mean? Like, right. Sometimes it is just a difficulty spike. Right. Like, Which is just like, okay, you should have made the next part a little less intense rather than have this huge thing where now I have to go grind for two hours. Yeah. Like it's one thing if it's like you haven't mastered this technique or whatever mm -hmm. or figured out this thing that you can do that's a different scenario but i find this one frustrating when it's like oh we just made the next level way harder like yeah get good like so, no don't waste my time yeah one for me um dragon quest 8 has this boss dolmagus it's an incredibly hard difficulty spike and i bounced actually i bounced twice at him i tried like, like from start getting there and just at that point just felt kind of so defeated and felt like it's not worth it to put the time to level up. And for me, I think that was just a difficulty spike. Yeah. You don't bounce off games very often. Not not really. And yeah. so, um, yeah, this was this one still kind of hurts because <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a long game and it takes even a long time just to get to that fight. And yeah. you feel like you're grinding, but yeah. apparently not. As opposed to something like Persona where the bosses are hard, but it's usually because it teach it it's a point where you have to learn how to use like the buff system mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah right? and and it's which is kind of really essential and makes the combat much more entertaining and fun and interesting so it's this moment where you get a difficulty spike but it's just cuz you have to learn to engage with some systems that you right. weren't forced to before right and that that i think is totally fair another thing that drives me nuts is when you have to fight the same guy multiple times and he's tougher every time for no reason yeah, when you face the same guy and he's you don't he's just he's tougher now because like what you means, are. Well, yeah, he probably went through the same trajectory as you. The same training, but I mean that makes sense <laughs> if you like started from the same. But like in Final Fantasy VIII, like Cipher is mm. like also just one of your classmates, so it makes sense that he's like progressing and working on himself the same way that you are but like if there's no in-game reason for him to be stronger don't make me fight that guy multiple times in stronger versions that's extremely <laughs> stupid yeah 
And then uh, maybe the last type or function we want to talk about is the boss who's just there for spectacle or for a set piece. Yeah. And if, uh, the boss itself is inconsequential. Um, and these, I find these frustrating, but um, like Uncharted does this a lot in okay. the final bosses. It's really just a set piece where there's happens to be another guy there. See, I have some love in my heart for this. <laughs> Partially, I think because I think so many boss fights are boring and stupid. Mm. Like if you want to just give me a big, exciting set piece <laughs> where like I hit a couple of buttons, honestly, in lots of cases, I feel like that ends up being mm. a more exciting experience mm. sometimes than they would have been able to give you by letting you like fight struggle your way mm-hmm. through that boss fight like remember how i ruined the mood of metal gear oh yeah like yeah. if you want to give me a big yeah. exciting heroic mm-hmm. like uncharted is a great example right like it would kill a lot of momentum in that game if you have like big yeah. dumb clumsy me like <laughs> yeah god of war does this a lot especially kind of before the reboot where um the boss itself would just be a huge spectacle set piece and mm-hmm. pretty beautiful but that also meant that a good chunk of the boss fight was quick time events right um because you couldn't actually kind of maneuver your character in a way to do these kind of spectacular things. You just right. kind of had to movie, like cut right, your way right, through right. them. Which like is kind of is kind of cheap within like game design, but I, I just think sometimes it still does produce a more fun outcome in the right game, in the right in the hands of the right designers than like a long struggle grind in a much less. Yeah, I mean thing. if the point of the boss fight is for you to appear to be a badass at a certain right, point. Right, right, uh, right, right. And they want to be 100% sure that you have that experience, then sometimes you have to take control away from the player. Yeah. I don't love it, but I understand why it's there. Yeah, not always, but I think there can be, I I can have love in my heart for this one. <laughs> and, and so we, there are some boss fights that we like, so maybe we can just go over what we like and what we don't like, especially because boss fights, right, they're meant to be these unique moments, but they've become so conventionalized and so many of them use the same tropes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, from game to game. And so... Maybe we can spend a few moments talking about what we actually like from a boss fight and what we don't like. Sure. Um, I mean, right off the top, I love a multi-phase boss fight with worthwhile phases. So Mm. sometimes this is just an arbitrary like, ooh, I was vulnerable to that element. Now the color of my sign has changed and now I'm vulnerable to this one. Mm. I find those ones pretty stupid. Okay. But um, like a, a... thoughtfully played out like real escalation like real feeling of like this is changing and they're responding to me fighting and we're going through multiple phases i absolutely love that um especially if it's rooted in things that make sense in the game world i mean one that that has come up really recently and so is front of mind is um the piano playing boss in luigi's mansion 3 um mm-hmm. i forget what his actual name is he's the he's the pianist so this is like for me, this one works because it has a bunch of phases. So you you're in a, a concert hall. Um, he like makes all the chairs levitate in the audience and then throws them at you. And then he's playing piano, which is controlling these little ballerina ghosts that like appear on stage dancing to his music and they attack you. And then he gets mad and possesses the piano. And he looks like like is it called Diane the car that it, the like evil car from like a Stephen King novel. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. There's something where it's like a possessed car. I, th- I think it is called Diane. I think you have Knight Rider. No, I'm not thinking of Knight Rider. Whatever. He jumps <laughs> into the piano and he's like got a face in there. He's like, Wah. and like pounds. So then there's this whole sequence and then eventually you break the piano so he can't hide in it. And he has a different e- series of attacks. But at every stage, like a 
the connection is made between the music that this ghost is creating and what's happening and the attacks that are going on. It's like the whole thing is choreographed like an old Looney Tunes cartoon. Like it feels like playing one of those old like Bugs Bunny cartoons of um, with the Barber of Seville in the background. Christine, that's the name of the car. <laughs> Christine is the name of the like possessed or haunted car thing in a weird Stephen King book. Anyway, whatever. Um, it just this this fight is like so rooted in it's such a good set piece. It has multiple phases that all really, really make sense. And it makes use of absolutely every mechanic that Luigi has available to him at that point. And it it's an intensification of everything that is good in that game elsewhere. Like the playfulness, the like feeling of impact when you're like chucking the ghosts in this piano thing around the satisfying environmental design, like using your space, using all the tools that you have. Um, it just, it was just wonderful. Like at the end of it, I was like, damn, that was a good <laughs> boss. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the things that for me is really important that a boss fight needs to be true to the game that it's in. Mm -hmm. So it needs to make use of the core mechanics of that game, ideally putting a twist on them or asking the player to use them in creative ways mm -hmm. or to combine them in ways that maybe they haven't done before. But yeah, the, the boss fight should still engage with what is actually kind of good about the game and what is the mechanical point of the game. Yeah. Um, there are definite exceptions to this. Uh, like in Sonic Mania, there's this um, fight with... Where are you going with this? There's a fight where they make you play Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine against him, which is like Puyo Puyo, but okay. Sonic fight version, which is a game that exists. And then okay. as a boss fight, you have to play it against Robotnik in the game. Okay. And it's just... So wild and weird and interesting. It's, sure, 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 sure. And is tied to the Sonic universe. Like, I don't want every boss to be like that. But in that case, it's like a pleasure. Like, you get one, you mm -hmm. know? You can pull, like, one weird trick mm -hmm. <laughs> in your game. If otherwise, your game is good and makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also give it a pass because Sonics and I think platformers in general have kind of notoriously bad boss fights, at least for me, because... Right. They're, they take away the platforming parts. But there has been a trend, especially in recent Mario games, where the final thing you do is kind of a boss stage. Mm. And so it's uh, it's less of a, a fight where you're just kind of hitting a guy three times in a certain way. But you actually have to use your platforming skills in cool and creative ways to get to the end. Cool. And that, for me, is much more of a climactic moment that makes sense in the context of that game as a as the final culminating activity. Right. Then... Uh, uh, jump on somebody's head three times or some other kind of fight with Bowser. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, another thing that I really love is is um, boss fights that are foreshadowed or that you get a glimpse of the boss early in the game. So this can vary because I don't want to just, I don't want to fight them early in the game mm -hmm. and then fight them again and have them be arbitrarily harder. But I love like seeing them or better yet, seeing the damage they have wrought. Mm -hmm in advance and then you get to them later in the game and you're like a little spooked because of how powerful they seemed before you've like you sort of like muster up all your your like courage and strength and go for it um i love that stuff <laughs> that is awesome yeah i mean i've mentioned before i love rogues galleries mm -hmm. i love yep. seeing a spate of bosses in front of me and knowing that i'm gonna have to um fight them at some point <laughs> But especially if they have kind of a level leading up to them that is also representative of maybe their character. Okay. And so I loved, as a kid and even now, like when Mario introduced the Koopalings. Oh, yeah. 
like Bowser's yeah, yeah, yeah. not kids, but like nieces and but nephews according to the yeah. show. Yeah. Those fights weren't actually great mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, but I love the idea of them. I love that each one was attached to one of the worlds. I love that they each had their own castle. What do you love about that? And so I loved in my mind, it was like the world is a reflection of them. Okay. And so for me, like in Mario 3, the water level is Wendy's level. Okay. And so for me, I don't know, I just had this, for me that like said something about maybe her character. Okay. That she took over this. She likes water. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And that even going through kind of her castle or or her airship or in um, Super Mario World, their castles. Mm Mm-hmm. They were also different. And I, I don't know. I just like, to, I always felt like that was a reflection of like their personality. Okay, cool. Even though that wasn't necessarily motivated in game. I don't think the game was telling you that, but I do like that you still read it in. Yeah, That's I just cool. like that this like land, and it, it, it is kind of this boss metaphor, right? This land is kind of like lorded over by this right. landlord. Like it, yeah, it actually <laughs> makes more sense in that case. Yeah. Who has imbued his personality into it and has built this castle in a way that reflects something about their character. Mm-hmm. And I have to go through that and these challenges that they in my mind, sure. um, you know, like up for tailored you. <laughs> for me right. according to what right. they think would trick me. Right. And then I have to fight them. Cool. And I love that so much. Cool. That's that's like the Mega Man structure too, right? With all yeah, the different, exactly. like the robots that you yeah. that you fight that have their specific flair all over the, mm. the level that leads to them. Yeah. Yeah. And I love learning something about the boss or the boss's character through the fight, yeah. whether that's intentional or not in the game. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that, that makes me think of what might be my all-time favorite boss fight in any game, mm. which is the Beauvoir fight in near Automata or Automata, whatever. Um, this fight is like one of the most epic and most powerful things I think I've like ever experienced in games. I love this thing so much. You got multiple phases. You got like deeply rooted in the lore of the world. You got tons of stuff about this this boss's character being expressed through play, through like the way it moves, the way it has adorned itself, its arsenal of of tools that it brings against you. Um and one of the things that happens in this fight is that it's trying so you're you're like an android in in this game, right? And it's trying to hack into you and you're trying to fend it off at the same time that you're trying to hack into it and and uh, whenever you get hit with certain types of its attacks, it, like you have to do a defensive hacking thing to get out of it. Eventually, when you can hack it, when you succeed at that, which is very hard and very frantic, you you unlock this little scene like of this robot's memory that you that you view that like characterizes how it came to be the thing that is now and unveils this like very very sad very like intimate story but that also hooks so so well into the big themes of the game of like these these robots like interpreting and in some ways misinterpreting and trying to understand human culture and so it just is so is so powerful it's like this opera singer robot um it's accompanied by an absolutely killer track on one of the best video game soundtracks that I'm familiar with. This is still a standout. There's like a part where it opens up a new phase where like it's it's you find out it's stored up all these like androids that are like the same models as you and that they like appear on these like crucifix things and you realize they're still alive and they've been reprogrammed by this. Like it just makes it's this unfolding gradual horror and emotional roller coaster and it's so intense and you're using absolutely every tool at your disposal and even when you're going to those hacking situations which is like a twin stick shooter kind of kind of vibe 
it's still the intensity does not break. Like you just flip mm. right into like slamming around those corners, like dodging stuff and firing on your on your obstacles. Just so exhilarating. Mm. Can't think of anything like stronger on on every single angle than mm. this. I'm gonna go listen to the song of this battle <laughs> as soon as we are done recording this. When we were getting ready for this, I watched this, pulled this fight up on YouTube just to be like, I want to make sure this was as good as I remember. And I ended up watching the whole like 12 minute thing just transfix. Like, oh my God. That fight rules. Play that game. It's good. It is good. <laughs> Do you have can you think of like a boss battle that for you encapsul even like something you played recently that like brings together a whole bunch of what you really like in boss design? Kind of. I think the the one that stands out that's recent, I've complained about this one before. It's the final fight of Sekiro. It's oh my God. Ishin the Sword Saint. This took you a week. That's being generous. <laughs> so, okay. So this fight is maybe my favorite version of the, it's just a hard guy at the end okay. fight. Right. This is the only From Software game where for me, the final boss was actually the hardest boss by mm. far in this case. Because you tend to get stuck at certain points, but not usually it's the not last usually one. not usually at the end. Yeah. Um, this was for me the hardest by by a long shot. Hmm. It, But it does so many things so well, even though it does a lot of things that I typically don't like. Hmm. So it has technically four phases, which to me is two phases too many, usually. <laughs> okay. Um, but the first phase is... Not even him. It's the the warm-up who's Genichiro, who you've already fought midway through the game and was a very hard fighter then. Mm-hmm. So now you have to fight him ag- again. And really, it's not that he's a chump, but this is a great... He he pretty much fights more or less the same as he did before. Mm-hmm. And so this is... It checks off the, okay, you can demonstrate right. that this guy who was pretty hard before is not so hard anymore. Mm-hmm. And not only that, the game kind of forces you to treat him in that way, because if you don't pretty much get through him perfectly, you're done. Oh, you just don't have enough, like... Like, if you waste your health on... Okay. Like, if you use your curative stuff on him... Okay. You're you're going to be done. Okay. So you have to pretty much go through him flawlessly. And so it makes you have that experience hmm. of, okay, you're a chump now. Cool. And then the real final boss just, like, comes out of his body. Oh, my God. Which is an awesome reveal. <laughs> okay. And then it has three stages of that boss. And each stage is not just an extra health bar, but they're completely different. He uses mm. different weapons. He uses different tactics. Cool. And they're meaningful, and you have to learn to adapt. And this guy was such an emotional roller coaster between feeling completely despondent, like that I had the Minotaur feeling, I think, that you had okay. a few times that maybe I just won't see the end of this game. Right. <laughs> um, I, I was so frustrated. I tried to go online and find like cheese strategies. I remember... And then those didn't work for me. Yeah. And at a certain point, I just kind of had to like pull myself up. Yeah, like bootstraps learn how to do it. Right? And just learn how to do it and learn his patterns and learn his patterns. And it's one of those things where you'll learn the pattern of the first form and you'll get through it pretty flawlessly mm-hmm. and you'll feel so good. And then his second form will emerge and he'll destroy you in two hits. Right. And you're back at that point of, I don't think I can do this. I don't know how to right. get through this form. It There doesn't seem to be any openings. It doesn't look like I can attack him. Right. And then slowly, and like every time you fight him, you have to go through the, all the other forms, including the Genichiro fight, which oh, is God. a bit much. Like that sure, sure, can sure, get sure. exhausting. Yeah. But when I finally beat him, I was like shaking. I don't <laughs> yes. think I felt so good about beating a guy. Yes. 
and I never want to do it again, but I loved them. I love being just trembling at mm-hmm. the end of a boss fight. There's like, I feel like I can count on one hand the number of times that's ever happened to me mm-hmm. in games, but that's like so special when you're done and you're just like, your like grip is loose and you just are so like flooded with mm-hmm. adrenaline and everything. Like that's a sign of something special. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and these bosses, I think are exceptions. More, Most bosses I think are pretty lazy. Yeah. Um, maybe the worst boss in recent-ish memory, maybe the worst boss of the last decade for me mm. was in um, Bioshock Infinite. Oh yeah. This Lady Comstock siren battle. Yep. These games just have bad bosses in general. Um, they're often just kind of like dudes with more health running around. They don't really do anything interesting. Like the characters are usually interesting, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. the actual fights themselves are just duds. Yeah. But this thing did, it just checked off so many of the things I never want to see in a boss fight. Um, one, you're fighting a ghost, which doesn't really make sense in the context of the game. Yeah. But that's besides the point. The real things. It's a combination of bullet sponge trope. No good. Um, Minions. Like raising Just minions. sending floods of trivial guys at you. Yeah. yeah. Hate it. Not a fan. Um, Like hide and seek where you'd have to, where they disappear and you'd have to find them. Oh, yeah. I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> um, terrible, bland, just level layout where you're yeah. having the battle. Um, that It's weirdly laid out almost like a cover shooter, which is like not what that game is at all. And you, yeah, and you can't fight this boss in that way. Yeah, yeah. And then you have to do it three times. <laughs> I forgot about that until you brought it up. It's infuriating. It's it's just feels like padding. Yeah. I hate it. I kind of generally tend to think that like the worst boss battles are all the ones that I just don't remember because it's mm, like you didn't that even, might be true. You yeah. didn't even make me mad enough to <laughs> have a rant about this. Um, you just like disappeared into your lost to time. Like, why did we bother? But I mean, one memorable one for me uh, qu- quite a while ago now I played Dragon Age 2, which actually is my favorite of the Dragon Age games. Hmm. I think it's the best one. But anyway, um, there is one point in that game where when like shit's really going down in the world, you have to do this one-on-one fight against a Kunari, which I think it's maybe the first time in the series you fight one. I'm not sure. But anyway, he's like the leader of all the Kunari who are in town. Nothing signifies in advance that you're going to be going into this. Certainly nothing signifies you're going to be doing it solo until you're like in the cutscene that leads into it and there's nothing you can do about it. And I have been playing as a rogue and like this guy is so unbalanced that and you're fighting like in a palace surrounded by people. But there was like nothing that I could do. And like one or two hits would kill me. Like it just you're so fragile. It's not like any of the other scenarios that you've like been preparing your character for what i ended up having to do after looking online is equipping a bow for the first time first and only time in this entire game and just kiting him around like running so that he would chase me and then do this like charge roll move and then like hitting him once with the bow and then continuing on it took me probably 45 minutes to kill this guy with like flea bite attacks it was so infuriating it took so long it was like not memorable in a good way. It just wasn't, it was like a boss from a different game that wasn't the one I was playing. Or like maybe if you were like a warrior style character instead of a rogue style character, it would be fine. But then like, you can't let me be a rogue. <laughs> like you can't, you can't design a boss that only works for one of your like character options. Yeah. I mean, that happens. I think that's a, a thing that we see in a lot of RPGs where you can tinker with your classes a bit, where you'll mm-hmm. run up against a, a baddie that your playstyle just doesn't work. With. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. That's no yeah. good. Yeah, that's that's no fun. Yeah. You no know else isn't fun. 
anytime you have to in the over the course of the boss fight protect a stupid ai <laughs> companion i hate it or if there's a timer those are other things timers are stressful yeah yeah, um, yeah 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 in all of these cases though there's always an exception um, yeah the the fight where you have to like stop meryl from killing herself great example of an exception where there's like uh, another thing in the room that you have to like kind of protect oh, like the psycho mantis fight the psycho mantis yeah. fight totally a, a counter example of yeah. that even though i still agree with you yeah for me the final boss of sonic adventure 2 the final hazard this big giant space lizard with boils on his body it's so stupid the flight's so bad you just you have to fly i think for the first time in the game and the mechanics of the of oh my kind god of the flying are bad no. you have to ram into the no. boils but sonic and shadow team up become Super Saiyan, and then this sweet like rock song plays. Well, like the actual fight's a mess, but I love that boss fight. It's so good because of everything else. So if you have a sweet song yeah, by Crush true. 40, um, I'm going to like your boss fight. Yeah. You know what? Good enough music can overcome just about <laughs> anything. Also, man, screw any time that you have to fight a boss while using like weird move mechanics that aren't well refined and you don't have in the rest of the game. Thinking about Ursula and Kingdom Hearts, I hated that battle. That was the worst. Swimming in that game sucks. That boss battle was awful. <laughs> okay, so back to Shadow of the Colossus. What are you um, <laughs> hoping for or dreading maybe from these boss fights? I'm hoping for um, differences. I'm hoping for non-sameness in, in each of the Colossi and I'm hoping for different small like puzzly elements without being overly puzzly mm. that are reflective of those different bosses so one of the things that i like that i've seen so far is like you said we have bipedal bosses we have like more four feet on the ground ones we have flying ones we have ones that have fur we have ones that have like moss and stuff so like give me incorporate that personality or that feeling mm. or that identity into the fight mm. um i want to work with my horse um i want that to feel like mm. a at its best are really fluid and I want to feel like we're working as one. Um, I am dreading becoming too sympathetic to these mm. colossi and feeling extremely sad about killing them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm dreading certain like move mechanics where maybe I have to be like dodging something and timing attacks, but also waiting for the right moment to like mm. jump onto the wing of this flying thing so that I can get up on it. Would you know is going to happen? That stuff makes me anxious. Spoiled in the trailer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That stuff. It, it's not that I can't do it, it, and it's like fair. It just it happens to make mm. me so anxious. Um, and I don't know. There's not that much that I'm dreading because I feel like I think because I know so many people love this mm. game. I feel a basic level of trust with it. Okay. Um, like, I feel like many of the things that I would describe as the worst, it like in a lesser game, there's plenty of stuff I would be mm. worried about with the boss fights. I kind of think these ones will be good. Okay. Uh, your trust is going to be put to the oh, test. Oh, no. Maybe uh, misplaced. Who knows? Because, well, we'll see. So we're going to, we may as well finish off as usual with predictions. Sure. This is a bit different because for this game, there's really just one prediction that matters. Oh, Will the horse die? Oh my God. I'm saying no. If this horse dies, I'm going to rage quit this game. <laughs> I'll not stand for horse death. <laughs> uh, oh my God. I did, you know what? For Last Guardian, I did look up whether Trico dies before oh I started. So I was like, I'm not doing this. I'm not putting myself through it. I'm going to say no, the horse doesn't die. But I, I feel not confident in that. I'm already upset. <laughs> All right. I think that'll do it for us today. Um, Thank you so much for listening. You can find updates and show notes at neverwasagamer.com. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Never Was a Gamer, and you can rate and review us on any podcast platform, including iTunes. Uh, if you don't do that kind of thing, maybe you could tell a friend. All those things are a huge help to us as we're getting started. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time when Michelle hopefully hasn't rage quit <laughs> out of frustration with bosses or horse Don't kill death. the horse. <laughs> don't do it. And uh, yeah, hopefully she'll be one step closer to becoming a gamer. <laughs> <laughs>